Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and I'm joined by my son, Ephraim Judah. And this is another program of answering questions for you, our question and answer program. If you'd like to be a part of this future program, you can send questions to us about the Bible, about the scriptures, into QA at lionandlamb.net. Let me repeat that. QA at lionlamb.net. Send your questions in to us, and we'll make it a part of a future program. So, Ephraim, we have a number of questions that have come in over the last month, and so without any further ado, let's go right to it. All right. First question comes from Patricia. She asks this. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 15, also in chapter 33, verses 5 and 26, the name Yesharun is present. Can you elaborate a little on this name? Yeah, this is a this is a name for Israel. Uh, in fact, it's a very honorable name for Israel. It's like the high esteem. Uh, it means upright one, and that's what Israel has been called to be before the Lord. And so, in Moses' second song, the second song of Moses, he refers to Israel not just as Israel, but as Yeshurun, the upright one. Now. In the song, it's rather interesting because he's really setting up a contrast. The Song of Moses is really talking about how uh, Israel is subject to God's judgment, and they have not been faithful, and they have not been upright, but he still uses the title against Israel, O Upright One, Yeshurun. And it's it's really an effort uh, on the part of Moses to um, provoke Israel into this is really what you've been called to do, so this is what you really should be. So he in, he calls them Yeshurun. Very good. Uh, our next uh, question uh, is from Nellie. She actually asked two questions. We'll start with the first one. Uh, will you please tell me how a messianic burial is done? Oh, my. Well, uh, burials and funerals are events for survivors. Uh, there's no benefit to be gained by the deceased in how... Uh, a funeral or, or is done for them. It's for the survivors. Uh, and it's really kind of a new area. There's not a lot of traditional stuff on this. But in the course of, you know, my 30-plus years in the Messianic movement, my involvement with funerals and so forth, is there's no restriction with regard to whether they are uh, buried or whether they're cremated. It's really the choice of the family. Um, and the deceased. And for the most part, it's a standard, shall we say, Christian funeral. There might be in some that I've seen where the Shema might be said. There might be some Hebrew elements uh, to the funeral, uh, depending on who's officiating. Uh, certainly Psalms 23 is always present uh, with it. And probably the most significant thing is at the burial site, uh, a lot of uh, funerals I've been a part of, is there's the sounding of the shofar, uh, you know, to, to kind of announce that this brother or sister is now making their way up to the bosom of Abraham and to herald them uh, as they go uh, there. Uh, really, again, it's really, there's no standard set thing on it. Uh, it's really for the benefit of the family, and, and the officiator is the one primarily who comes up with uh, how to conduct an honorable service that you know, evokes the best memories of the deceased and comforts 
those that are the survivors. Yeah, and it's also stipulated on whatever the custom of where you are, like whether you're buried in an ossuary versus under the ground or something. It's all just kind of based on what the right. custom what of the, the land is. What the preferences are of the survivors. Okay. There's no set tradition. Very good. Uh, our next question from Nelly. Uh, she asked this. She speaks of me, me uh, doing the tour portion. She says that I uh, mentioned, and of course I'm sure this is the case, that each and every number of every tribe that's listed in the book of numbers as we went through those tour portions, um, that each and every one of those numbers is significant. Is it possible to have an answer or a teaching on that? Um, and when I said that, it's I, I believe that there is greater meaning and greater deeper studies that can be done with every single number that's listed from for every tribe, every name has a significance to it. As far as I know, those those teachings have not been. I haven't seen more elaborate teachings on those things. But I think some people well, have done. There studies. are Jewish teachings, um, uh, traditional Jewish teachings. For example, Numbers chapter seven, where it talks about all the gifts that were given to the tabernacle from the different tribes. It's, it looks like the exact same list uh, that's given by each tribe. However, that passage of scripture listing those gifts for the 12 tribes is probably has more commentary, Jewish commentary on that passage because every number is explained uniquely to the tribe as to what it represents for the tribe. So that's probably one of the the largest examples that we have in scripture where there is actual teaching that does that. Now, I have hinted at those when I've gone through Torah portions, but just to, just to cover that one area of chapter 7, you would have to dedicate a whole program just to that particular thing. But if you uh, look in Jewish commentaries, and uh, for example, Humash uh, on the Torah portion, in Numbers chapter 7 probably has one of the most significant uh, elements there. There, the subject of the meanings of numbers used in scripture, there are certain thematics that are always associated with it. Number one is always associated with God. Two is about balance between God and man. Three is about covenants. Four is about the Messiah. Five is about grace, mercy, and faith. Six is about man. Seven is about the plan of God. Eight is about new beginnings. Nine is judgment. And ten has to do having confidence in God. Now that's a quick Super fast rendition. It doesn't stop there. There are other thematic teachings. And whenever we see those numbers or most significant digits associated with numbers, it evokes that theme into a deeper understanding. But it's a very elaborate study. And the study on the number 42, coming from Numbers chapter 33, that certain passages, I think, if you really dug into a certain yeah. chapter, I mean, another example of this, and I think this might be what she was hinting at, Numbers chapter 2, where it lists, you know, the armies of Judah were 74,600. Right. The armies of Zebulun, 57,400. All of those, I mean, if somebody committed their life on the study, right. trying to find other parallels, Extrapolate certain elements of wisdom from all of that. Correct. Let me recommend a Christian book uh, that has attempted to address this subject, and it's a book by a very famous uh, biblical scholar called E.W. Bullinger, and he wrote a book called Numbers in Scripture. And for the Christian worlds, that's probably the main reference book that's used by teachers on this topic. But again, in the Jewish perspective, and particularly dealing with the Torah, 
there's a whole series of definitions that is well understood by Torah, Torah teachers. And I think we would always counsel somebody to always be mindful of the weightier matters of the law and sort of thing. And so, so there's certain things well, that I think people could get well, caught up Yeah, in. this can get to be a very detailed, yeah. elaborate thing, and, and so everything needs to be kept in balance. I, I agree. Uh, personally, if you see a number in Scripture and it speaks to you or that's a number that keeps showing, well, well then, then for an individual study, I think you could do Right. It. Follow what the Holy Spirit's trying to tell you. Exactly. Exactly. Very good. All right. Our next question uh, comes from Dan. Uh, he asks this. He says, I'm listening to the Torah study, and he references my Torah portion as well. Ephraim just quoted from the first portion in Deuteronomy, chapter 2, regarding buying from the descendants of Esau. Why would Israel have to buy from the descendants of Esau food and water since God was supplying their manna and their water? Um, I didn't really answer that in the course of my Torah portion. I'm curious, actually, what you have to say well, about that. Well, it's very clear that when the children of Israel went into the wilderness experience um, and on, on their journey to the promised land, that there were a lot of practical things that took place at the same time that God was preserving his people, providing water, providing manna for them to live. And that doesn't mean it was exclusively that. It just means that God's grace was sufficient for them, and it supplied those, and they, they received them. But, it, you know, they also had animals, you know, and their own livestock. And normally in the course of having a herd or a flock, you slaughter some of the animals and you consume of them. And so, like, for example, when they celebrated the Passover, the first year in the wilderness, where'd they get the lambs? God didn't just miraculously give them. They took lambs from the flock. So there, it's the, the, the water and the manna was supplemented with the other things that they had or other things they had access to to make sure that they were preserved and protected. That's what the manna and the water were for. Water from the rock doesn't mean that's the only water they consumed. Correct. Just because they had manna doesn't mean that's the only food they consumed. Correct. Now, a thing that actually popped into my mind that I thought was interesting was that they had the manna. Manna was in no way a tradable good because it spoiled after one day. So it was interesting how if they did do business with the sons of Esau or anyone else, that was not something they could trade. They obviously had to trade supplies, livestock, or, or things they had crafted along the way and things like that. Right. All right. Very good. Our next question comes from Deborah uh, with regards to the ninth of Av, Tisha, Tisha B'Av. Uh, do we as Messianic Jews fast on this morning day because of the destruction of both temples? And are there special prayers associated with this day? If you go to uh, a traditional uh, Jewish prayer book, there will be specific readings and specific prayers that's done on that day. By the way, that fast is not a 24-hour fast. It is a from morning to sun coming up until the, until the sun sets. It's a day fast for that, a fast of morning. Uh, there, I know of certain, uh, some of my Messianic brethren who do observe it and do observe the fast. Uh, I know that all my Messianic brethren do take note of that date uh, for it, but it's not, uh, it's, uh, I mean, my goodness, we can't quite get all of our Messianic brethren to even keep all the feasts of the Lord. How are we going to keep these minor fasts? Um, should we? Would it be recommended to do so? Yes, amen, and amen. It would. We're part of Israel. It's part of the history. It's part of the lessons uh, that we're to learn. But if you look around through the Messianic movement, look, we're 
a ragtag group still scattered in the nations, and and we still look like a mob coming out of Egypt uh, rather than a people who've been to the base of Mount Sinai and heard the voice of God. We're still learning. We're still coming to terms with all of these commandments and observances. So it would be considered a sort of a traditional or natural, uh, nationalistic... Uh... It's a nationalistic fast to remember... Uh, when the people cried in their tents and believed the report of the, of the spies and turned away from the Lord and turned away from going to the promised land. And as a result, great judgments and great harm has come to Israel on that date repeatedly throughout history. And there's been many times that Israel has cried. Uh, and it's associated with that day. And we believe the destruction of the temples, to both right. temples took place. Unbelief on the part of Israel, obviously a reminder we should not turn away from the Lord. We should not be sad. We, should be, we have all the reasons in the world to be happy with the Lord and his promises. So in short, would we regard it maybe in the same level as, say, Hanukkah or Purim? Well, uh, I'd go a step further. Um, not only is it nationalistic, but there's actually a prophecy about it in the future in which the, uh, Zechariah says that the day will come in the kingdom when the fast of the fourth and the fifth month, that includes the ninth of all, will become seasons of joy. And so it is something even yet future that will be observed and we'll know about not as a not as a sad event but as a very positive event our next question comes from Carl with uh, reference to uh, the book of Hebrews chapters 8 through 10 uh, can you please explain Hebrews chapter 8 through 10 about the old covenant being obsolete because of the new covenant uh, this is a an exciting question for me to answer uh, I I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but let me see if I can give you a super accelerated, shall we say, review of this. I have already taught extensively on that. For those of you who would like to get even more detail that I've done on this, I have an article uh, in the Yavo past uh, issues called The Paradigm of Hebrews. You can go and read a written article about it. I have some... Um, actual uh, video teachings about this subject. So let me just cut to the chase. Um, I do not believe the book of Hebrews was written by the Apostle Paul. I do not believe the book of Hebrews was written by any apostle. I don't believe it was written by Timothy. I believe it was written by a, uh, a Gentile believer who had been under some of the teaching of the Apostle Paul that he was in a Greek-speaking land, and that he wrote a book specifically to Messianic believers, Messianic Jews, that they should abandon their customs and their cultures and join the rest of what was now emerging as a Gentile-cultured church. And that his point that and the argument that he's making in his book is trying to let me see if I can make the argument for him. He's trying to say that the Messiah as high priest is much better than the priests of the Levites. He's trying to say that the Messiah's sacrifice is far greater than any sacrifice that was ever in the temple. He's trying to say that the Messiah's going up into heaven was a greater heavenly temple than the tabernacle and the, the temple in Jerusalem. By the way, I have no argument with that. Yeah, I, I fully agree. But he goes a step further. 
he says that as a result of the Messiah coming and doing the work of redemption, and, and we know these things of the Messiah, that effectively he was replacing uh, the old covenant. He was replacing the temple and the tabernacle. He was replacing the Levite priests. Now, there's no question that historically, in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. The priesthood basically came apart because there was no temple. And, and, and God permitted our enemies to come in and uproot um, all of these things that had been established beforehand. And um, the writer of Hebrews, uh, I believe this book was written well after that event, that he was trying to like conclude, well, don't you see, this is what, is, this is what has transpired. That's old stuff. We, we're on to the new stuff. And then he makes a series of arguments. And that's what uh, chapters 8, 9, and 10 are doing. Let me just briefly mention some of the arguments he has, and let me tell you why I have a problem with these arguments. They just don't hold up. Uh, first of all, he starts off in chapter 8, and he's trying to say, now the main point of what he's saying, what is his main point? That we have a Messiah who's a high priest, and he's wonderful and great. I agree with him. But he goes to substantiate that by taking issue with what God had done in the past. That's silly. I mean, think about this for a moment. God doesn't have to take issue with anything he's done in the past for him to go forward with his program. Men do that silly stuff, but God doesn't have to do that. Everything God has already done is perfect. It doesn't need to be corrected. It doesn't need to be modified. It doesn't need to be adjusted. The scripture clearly says that the word of God and everything that he said is perfect forever settled in heaven. So where did we get this premise that what Moses did was wrong or short-sighted? Or inappropriate. No, it was perfect for what it was that God gave. God manifested himself in this way, taught us very important things. When the Messiah came, the Messiah's teaching based on the things we've learned from Moses and the previous covenants. Yes, it's true that in the prophecy of Jeremiah 31, and he quotes this passage, that the term new covenant is used. Now, he defines new covenant means this, verse 13 of chapter 8. And when he said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete. Absolutely false. That is not what the term new covenant means in the Hebrew. In fact, in the Hebrew, the actual proper definition would be the renewed covenant. It's not a replacement one. Um, and, and he goes on to say, well, it's obsolete, growing, growing old, ready to disappear. I have news for you. When we get into the kingdom, we will still have the Torah. We will still have Moses, the teaching of Moses, and all the truths and principles that are, are going to be part of the kingdom. Uh, so where did we get the idea that went away? Well, what he's doing is trying to build an argument to get these Messianic Jews to stop being separate from the Gentile church. He wants them to give that stuff up, come over and join us, be a part of our assembly. Now, let me go on to further tell you uh, and people are not going to like to hear me say this, but it is true. This writer did not understand the scripture. This writer did not understand what was written by Moses, and he made a, some fundamental errors. Let me give you one of them here that's um, very clear. Chapter 9. He's describing the tabernacle. 
and he's describing certain things that Moses established, certain religious ritual elements so that we could understand and have the symbols of our faith. And here's what he says. Verse 2, For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and an ark of the covenant. Wrong. The golden altar of incense was in front of the veil, not behind the veil. Now, there is a passage of Scripture describing the tabernacle that if you didn't understand what you're reading there and you were just, you, you went through it very simplified, you would make this mistake. You would make this mistake because, because you wouldn't really know what else the Scripture said with regard to this. The altar of incense was in front of the veil. Um, we go down a little bit further. He's talking about those were symbols for the present time, but all of that's been done away with. And he alludes to, verse 10, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Well, that's an interesting word, reformation. Moses never prophesied there would be a time of reformation. The Messiah never talked about a time called reformation. He talked about creation, he talked about redemption, and he talked about restoration. And that's what the rest of the Bible talks about. You will not find any other prophet or any other place in Scripture where it ever talks about, quote, a time of reformation that the Messiah, when the Messiah comes. That is a made-up term that was made up by the Gentile Christian church to explain how they've replaced Israel. This is the only reference in Scripture that says that. And it's not verified and not confirmed anywhere else in Scripture. And according to the rules of Torah, it should not be considered the truth. But let me go one statement further. Toward the end of chapter 9, he decides to come up with a definition for the word covenant. Here's what he says. Verse 15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. That is not true about the Hebrew word uh, covenant or brit. The Hebrew word Brit has one definition. It means cutting. And that's the reason why in the past you hear about uh, you cut a covenant, that there was blood present to be a part of the covenant. Now, in the Greek, there is a second definition. The Greek has that definition. But there's a second definition for the word covenant. It's the same one that we use for the word testament. And most of you, if you've done family planning and future planning, well, you probably have filled out your last will and testament. You know, and what you've done is you've written a set of instructions that after your death, not before, after your death, you have the following wishes or preferences or you want to do certain bequeaths and give gifts to various people and so forth. And so the Greek has two definitions for the word. So which definition did he choose? The Hebrew definition for the word Brit, or did he use the Greek alternate definition for testament? He chose the Greek 
alternate definition. Now, he's taken a Greek definition for the word and laid it over the Hebrew scriptures and then tried to use the Greek definition to explain the Hebrew scriptures. Now, if anybody were to come up to you, hold the Bible up, and take a passage of scripture and decide to use an American definition for words, phrases, expressions, and interpret the Bible in terms of an American cultural thing, you know, modern American English, you would look at that person as he's not a scholar and he's an idiot and he has committed gross error. That instead he should have gone back to the original definition that was in the original language and used that definition to interpret it. This Greek teacher did not do that. This Greek teacher used a Greek definition for the Hebrew scriptures. Well, as a result, great error has taken place. Now, it goes on uh, from there, and I could give you even more examples, but the, the bottom line is, is that, let, let me give you this one last one. Um, in, in chapter 9, late, he says, verse 19, For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet, with wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Absolutely false. I can, I can show you the exact verse back in the Torah. Moses did not sprinkle the book. He sprinkled the altar. And he didn't sprinkle all the people. He sprinkled the firstborn. And he read from the book. And he read from the book. You know, but there is a verse back there when you read the Greek Septuagint that you could almost think that's what is being expressed when uh because you're you're looking at a Greek text and didn't quite understand fully what's going on. Now there's a host of other things I could go into. I'm not going to take any more time trying to explain this. Let me say this about the book of Hebrews. Uh, there at no time has God ever taken and, and formed a covenant in which that it nullified previous covenants. When God made the covenant with Adam, it didn't go away when he made a covenant with Noah. When he gave the, the rainbow in the sky, he did not change anything that he had promised to Adam. And the same thing is true that when he formed a covenant with Abraham, he didn't change anything that had been done with Noah or with Adam before either. What the covenant was made with Abraham was completely separate, stood on its own, separate from the others. When he made the covenant with Moses and the children of Israel, it didn't make the covenant with Abraham go away. It didn't make any of the previous covenants with Noah or Adam go away. And when he made a covenant with King David... He did not make any of the previous covenants. So where did we get this idea that when he made the covenant with the Messiah, and the Messiah made, that that does away with any of the so-called covenants? And by the way, you'll notice the writer of Hebrews lumps all of the previous covenants, does not define them individually as they're given in Scripture. He just lumps them all again and says they're all old as a comparison to the word new covenant. At no time in the Bible... Has anybody ever referred to the previous covenants except the writer of Hebrew as the old covenants? Even the Apostle Paul does not refer to the old covenant. He refers to the covenants made with Abraham or the covenant made with the children of Israel. These are individual different covenants. So this whole idea of lumping all the past covenants, calling them old, 
Let's give a negative connotation to that, by the way. And then that's what the wonderful Messiah has done. He's come and made a new covenant, and he's far greater, and he made all that stuff go away. Is absolutely false teaching. Now, I look at this, and I've done this study extensively. I think the, the guy was a true believer. I think he was a little misinformed and, and misunderstood and mistaught. And I think part of his mistake was he was reading from the Greek Septuagint. He wasn't reading from the Hebrew Scriptures. By the way, shock of shocks, the Greek Septuagint doesn't have all of the, quote, Old Testament in it. And in fact, let me take you as a last point here. I'm going to take you to Jeremiah chapter 33. And in chapter 33 of Jeremiah, there is a discussion about a great prophecy about the Messiah and his kingdom, what he will establish. Let me read to you from Jeremiah chapter 33. Uh, Let me begin at verse um, 14. I'm going to read a couple of verses. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word that I've spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And in those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the world. We're talking about the Messiah now. He's the righteous branch from the olive tree, from the root of Jesse. Okay? And in those days Judah shall be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety, and this is the name by which they shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That will preach any Sunday there is, that the Messiah is our righteousness in the faith. We have none of ourselves. He is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. That is a prophecy that says that the son of David, the Messiah, will forever and eternally set on the throne of David as king of Israel forever. David will never lack for one to sit on that throne. We're talking about the eternal part of the Messiah. What the Hebrew writer was talking about, how much superior he is. Well, he didn't emphasize about him his kingship, This one's talking about his kingship is so superior that he effectively, by coming through the line of David, he becomes king forever. Okay? We're all with it. And then it says this. Verse 18, And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. If you believe that the Messiah is the eternal king of Israel, he says... Equally with it, the Levites will always be preparing sacrifices before him in his temple. Now that single verse refutes the entire teaching of the book of Hebrews. Guess what? The Greek Septuagint doesn't have the second half of Jeremiah 33. The writer of Hebrews never read these scriptures that I just read to you. He did not know they existed. And why is it that the Jews, the 70 Jew rabbis who, why is it that they didn't put that in the Greek Septuagint? I'll tell you, real simple. They knew that Gentiles were going to be reading this, and they didn't want any future Gentile to be coming telling them who the Messiah is. 
So they took major passages about the prophecy of the Messiah and did not translate them in the Greek Septuagint. And one of those guys, this fellow, this Christian, got a hold of one of those copies of the Greek Septuagint with missing passages of Scripture, and he had no idea there was a promise that the Messiah would be king forever and the Levites would continue to serve before him. And so he said the Levites went away, that there's another priesthood that's replaced him. He's completely in error. If, I was, if he was sitting here right now, the writer of Hebrews right now, based on what I just, he would repent. But you and I have the benefit of his writing, and we need to discern it accurately and correctly. Now, are there other things said in the book of Hebrews that are right and correct? Yes, a whole host of things. He was a believer, and so he, he talked about a whole number of things, like Hebrews chapter 11 and, and uh, so forth. There's a lot of good stuff in there. But I consider um, the book of Hebrews to be an excellent Christian commentary with a few errors, which is what every Christian commentary has in them. They're not holy writ. They're just commentary. Jewish commentary as well. You might as well just throw, throw it all in there. The matter is, the book of Hebrews was the last book put in the New Testament. It wasn't even put in until about 400 A.D. It was never considered to be a, um, a writing of the nature of like that of the testimony of the Apostle Paul. If you go back and look at the rules of, of the building the canon, they violated every rule. The church fathers violated every rule of getting the book of Hebrews into the scripture. It was not proved as being one of the apostles. It was not first century. It clearly is something that came later. All right. So that has explained Hebrews 8 through 10. All right. Very good. Um, on the heels of that, uh, I just remember there was another question that I had in here that I've go, went ahead and pulled out. A question that came from Ron, um, where he specifically asked about the creation of the biblical canon. Uh, first, as original Catholic, do, uh, Catholic doctrine, and then second, the Protestant doctrine as it is here today. Um, I've heard you say in previous broadcasts that people uh, may have been political in nature. I'd like to know who made the decisions, why some books made it and other ones didn't, what criteria was used, and maybe what books should have been looked at more seriously, which may have been uh, eliminated. All right. So the whole study of how we got the Bible is a very, very serious study. In fact, I have made this comment repeatedly. Uh, do not go back and attempt to do an independent study on how we got the Bible or get into a major study about how we got it until you are established in your faith that you know who you are, you know who you believe in, you have very clear evidences that you know who the Lord is and you trust and believe it. Don't do it until you go back because I guarantee you that they, you will go back and see what these men did at various stations and so forth. There was so much nonsense going on. It was, it's almost like modern church leaders today that much nonsense going on. Um, and it was political. The church uh, in those days was split east and west. Um, and uh, there was great um, arguments. And by the way, when they would have an argument, they would sometimes kill each other over the argument, uh, just to show you how profound they were led by the Spirit of God. Um, and there was, the, there was a part of the church that didn't want to hear anything about prophecy. They wanted to control the, the institution of the church. And you can't have people talking about future prophecies going on uh, and for them to maintain control. 
There were others who wanted it. There were others who felt very strongly in the works of the Holy Spirit because there were many works of the Holy Spirit in the early church. Um, And some didn't want to have that anymore. And so they were trying to come with arguments why we don't do that anymore. Uh, There was a lot of controversies uh, that were going on. the believers wanted, um, they, had, they had the scriptures, and meaning they had what we call the Tanakh. In fact, it was canonized, it was formalized in 90 AD by a rabbi named Yochanan ben Zakkai, the first rabbi of Judaism, is the guy who pulled those scriptures together and, and said, this is the Jewish scriptures uh, to teach the faith. They had those, and for a long time, that's all they referred to. However, because of Paul's missionary trips, the people wanted to hear more direct testimony about when the Messiah came, what did he do, what did he say, and so forth. So the Gospels were written. Uh, In fact, there were actually five Gospels written, not four. There was a Gospel of Thomas that was written. You know, Thomas, the fellow who doubted, okay? And in fact, the Nicene Conference of about 325 A.D. was expressly called to make the determination about how many Gospels should be in the study for the Scriptures. And they didn't like Thomas because, you know, he was doubting Thomas. And Thomas did not overtly, strongly, dramatically uh, refer to Yeshua as Lord He just referred to him as the Messiah and the things that he did. And so they felt that that's not a good enough testimony, even though he's an apostle. So they slam-dunked his thing, and they agreed on four Gospels, including the Gospel of John. And so they got rid of the Gospel of Thomas. And these were scriptures that were used by the early believers. The other controversial books... Uh, everybody kind of liked what Paul had to say, but they had a lot of concern about Peter. They didn't like the second letter of Peter. It was way too prophetic. And in fact, they didn't want to put it in. Um, They didn't like the letters of John, even though they loved his gospel. And they certainly didn't like the book of Hebrews. Um, And so what they did was throughout the years, and we're talking about a couple of centuries here now, uh, they would have different collections of, of the scriptures that would go along with the Hebrew Bible. Well, and the fellow that was most responsible for collecting these up was a fellow named Eusebius, and he would collect up copies. He would make copies of these different things that he would run into and find. Finally, they dis, uh, when um, uh, Con- um, Constantine became emperor of the Roman Empire, he sat down with all of the religious leaders and he said, look, you know, if you're going to have this to be the state religion, you know, here for us, and he wanted Christianity to be that, you've got to have a clear, defined set of reference material that clearly defines it. You need a law, you know, that does it. Thus, the church proceeded to build the canon, which is church law. And that's when the great debate came into exactly which books should go into it. Um, and that's when Jerome, in 400 A.D., put in the book of Hebrews to solve a big political battle that was going on between the East and the West Church, you know, for it. There was, it wasn't theology. It was political intrigue. 
Now, the average believer, we have this wonderful feeling. Well, this is holy writ, and it's pure, and it's perfect. It's and books of the Bible. Exactly. And, you know, from cover to cover, it's holy, you know, so we're inspired by God, in, inerrant. You know, there's no mistakes in it whatsoever. Um, and we fail to understand that there was a process by way these teachings came to be, and it's only later that we have credited certain writers of the New Testament that they were inspired by God. Therefore, like previous writers of the Old Testament, uh, we consider them to be the Word of God because uh, the Spirit moved these people to give this instruction and, and, and so forth for it. And thus, we have the Bible. When the first Bible was actually created, it included the entire Apocrypha, a whole series of other Jewish writings, a whole series of other books associated with it. Now, when the Protestants came along um, and the Protestant Reformation, they decided we're going to revise uh, the Bible because there's a bunch of stuff that the Catholics are doing with, including the Apocrypha, that they didn't agree with. So they decided to come up with a Protestant Bible, and they threw the Apocrypha out. And then it got even a little weirder when the Bible actually started to be printed, like, for example, in the 1600s. And people actually started reading the Scripture. That brought up a whole bunch more because there was a bunch of stuff that they just didn't know the Bible actually said. And then we got the American Bible Society involved. The doctrine of inerrancy, you know, where every word is perfect and settled and so forth. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the doctrine of inerrancy did not come into the church or into the faith until it happened in Chicago in 1977. 300 scholars got together and made a doctrinal statement that all churches accepted that said the Bible in the original patriarchs, in the original autographs, in the original text was written and it was inerrant. Anything else from that, it may be a copying error or some misunderstanding or whatever. And so they made a, doc, a doctrine and all churches, American churches and spread out in the missionaries, that the Bible is inerrant. What they're really saying is not this book that I have here is inerrant. They're saying, no, the original written stuff by the writer is inerrant. Well, I don't have a problem with that. I really don't. But how did I get these printed pages from that date? Well, they've been copied multiple times. And by the way, they didn't have Xerox machines, so you could get exactly what had been written. Somebody had to rewrite it, and along the way, they inserted things and changed this word because they thought they'd give a better understanding for it. And that's a whole nother study as to how we got the Bible. Now, where's the bottom line? I believe this book that we have, we call the Bible, is trustworthy. I believe it's full of veracity and truths. And I believe, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, you can get your nose into this thing, and you will find out about the truths of God that will guide your spiritual life. I am not going to have an argument, though, over this exact word versus that exact word. If you get into that level argument, you have completely missed the point of what's going on. And when you go back and do that study about where do we get the Bible from, it will probably freak you out. And I've actually seen men give up the faith because of doing that study. Because their faith was not grounded through the Holy Spirit and through 
you know, the evidence of what God had done for them in their life. It was based on some academic thing. And if that's, in fact, that's what concerns me the most about a lot of believers today. I believe there are certain of our believers, they believe in the Bible more than they believe in God. And I think when you do that, you make a huge mistake. And eventually, sometime down the road, you're going to run into trouble with that. Yeah. Do you think that the doctrine of inerrancy has also caused people to hold these 66 books in a higher esteem than, say, some of those other biblical texts that didn't yeah. make it or these kind well, of things like know, that? It, it causes, it, it has sown more division between this, what we have here, versus other scripture, other knowledge of God, other yeah. biblical texts. And by the way, you, I should also mention this, that even after this book was established, in 400 AD, there were Christians who proceeded to go out and write other books and try to suggest that they also should be part of this text. Um, there's a whole series of books called the Gnostic Gospels. And attribution is given to the Apostle Bartholomew that he wrote one. Uh, there's a whole series of things that have been done. in the And a bunch of church people, they got onto that too. Um, trying to have the most um, uh, authentic reference for the faith. This is a game that's been played all the time. Um, we've got people today who will stand up and make, quote, a prophetic utterance that is in direct conflict with what the Scripture says and try to convince Christians that that's a better reference, a better instruction than what is written. The controversy continues to go on. And that's the reason why Paul warns us that we have to be wise, rightly divide his word, uh, not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Uh, what do we examine them against? We examine them against the previous testimony that we consider to be true. And we let the Bible interpret the Bible. Uh, and we try to follow those rules uh, and so that we can teach uh, and not so division. But it is the study of the scriptures, if you, if you did it purely from an academic standpoint, and that's the reason why a lot of academics really don't poo-poo the Bible, they don't consider it an authentic source, is because it's got this incredible history of, of um, controversies and arguments and debates and, and people slipping this in, pulling that out, and, and all sort of matter. Yeah. Not not to keep it going longer than it is, but I, something else popped in my mind when you said that some people believe in the Bible more than they believe in God. I think that's that's a uh, major snare for a lot of people. I think in times that people would um, they they hold to the Bible so much that then it replaces even moves of the Holy Spirit uh, when there is Correct. a prophetic utterance or they something like that. They actually quench the Spirit. They quench the Spirit in the sense of, of you know, saying that, well, if it doesn't line up with Scripture, then it has nothing to do with and, anything. And here's the irony of the thing. Yeah. Those that usually advocate that they believe in the Bible more, they actually don't know what the Bible says. Right. And they find themselves, when it's pointed out to them, they... they they find themselves to be hypocrites. Right. They're not doing what they said. So we find ourselves here in the movement trying to well, part of the messianic, and encourage, part of the messianic movement the is to go back and find out what did the scriptures really say, right. and let's follow that as opposed to man's traditions and man's precepts. 
Uh, and it's just like the same thing that when Yeshua came, he accused the religious leaders of his day, preferring the precepts of men to the commandments of God, preferring the traditions of the elders to the commandments of God. Those, that same complaint exists today. Yeah. It's just as true today. If Yeshua was walking with us, he would be having the same conversations with religious leaders all throughout the world. All right. All right. Very good. Our next question uh, comes from Ursula with uh, referring to Revelation uh, chapter 12, specifically verses 5, 6, and 12. Um, He says, thanks for taking my question. Uh, She does. Can you please give your thoughts on the event described by John in Revelation 12? Um, When does it occur? And who in particular is John referring to in verses 5, 6, and 12? Will this be the fulfillment of Daniel? She's also relating it to Daniel's 70-week prophecy mentioned in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and 27. Here we are in the month of August, um, and I was fully expecting this question to come in from somewhere. Sure. Um, let me read the verses in particular. Revelation chapter 12, beginning of verse 5, and it says, do I want verse that verse? or 5, 6, and 12. Well, let me, let me start at verse 3 so we have the full context of what the verses are about. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared for by God so that she might be nourished for 2,260 days. All right, any of the other verses? Uh, verse 12. Okay, uh, verse 12. Uh, okay, let me... Let me go ahead and read verse 12. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he is only a short time. All right, so let me bring us up to speed on the, I think, the reason why this question was asked. There is circulating amongst the believers that there is an astronomical sign that is to occur around September 23. 2017 next month. This sign is an astrological sign in which it involves the constellations Leo and Virgo and the star Regulus, I believe. Um, And it might actually uh, even occur, uh, involve Jupiter uh, in the process. And what some people have decided to say is that that event, astronomical event, is getting ready to take place from an astrological interpretation is the fulfillment of these verses. It's very clear that Revelation chapter 12 is defining and describing an astrological sign. I saw a sign in the heavens. And by the way, in ancient times, spiritual men, before we had the zodiac, before the Babylonians kind of took over the whole thing, religious men would look to the heavens for signs because the heavens declare the glory of God. And so they would look to understand. In fact, most religious men in ancient times were scholars and astrologers uh, and knew and tracked time using, um, you know, the, the planets and, and the sun and the moon. They knew about eclipses and uh, solar and lunar eclipses because they studied it. They, they tracked it. 
And so we have in the scriptures here a specific astrological sign that goes with the scripture. So let's go first and just give a basic interpretation. Somehow we have the Israel is going to be doing something, give birth to a son. We believe the son is going to be the Messiah. And that the devil, who's called the dragon here, is going to attempt to destroy the son. And and that the woman is going to escape from the dragon and she'll be preserved for 1,260 days. By the way, those numbers, 1,260 days, track with a bunch of other great tribulation prophecies. So the belief is that on September 23rd, that we're going to have this astrological sign, and oh, by the way, the great tribulation is going to begin. That the Messiah is going to be getting ready to come. Now the pre-tribulationists think this could be the Messiah is going to show up and rapture us all out of here before the great tribulation begins. So let's go back and let's get this straight now. Leo the lion is not the dragon. What constellation is the red dragon that's being decided? Anybody who's ever studied the ancient scriptures knows the answer to it is the constellation Hydra. Hydra is this multi-headed dragon. And by the way, the scripture describes he has many heads. He has seven heads. That's a hydra. That's not a lion. Now, there is a conjugation that occurs when Virgo occurs with hydra. And in the northern hemisphere, from the position of Jerusalem, it's only seen in the middle of the winter. Only at the winter time does the earth tip like at December on the shortest day, you can now see Hydra come up on the horizon, and here's Virgo, and here's, uh, here's uh, Hydra, and it's in the equator of where the moon comes and where the sun rises, and, and it is believed, and has always been believed, that we're talking about an event that takes place in the winter. Now, by the way, that lines up perfectly, because the Great Tribulation interestingly enough, is to begin in the season of winter. Even the Messiah said, you know, that, you know, pray that your flight, and he was talking about the start of the Great Tribulation, pray that your flight be not on Sabbath nor in winter. So, and the idea is three and a half years later, if you start in winter, it comes around, guess what, to the fall holidays at the end of the Great Tribulation so that the Messiah can fulfill the, the fall holidays of trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. Trumpets being the resurrection, atonement being the day of the Lord, tabernacles the first celebration of the kingdom. And so anybody who does any kind of reasonable, I mean, seriously, when, what would be the plot of this three-and-a-half-year Great Tribulation? It has to begin in the season of winter. It ends in the season of fall. That, that's clear. So if I have this astrological sign, which is supposed to be the start of the Great Tribulation, why would I be looking for something in the fall? And why would I be confusing what is clearly known as the astrological sign of the constellation of Hydra is the Red Dragon? It has been known for a long time, but so where did we get this thing that Leo is it? Oh, and the, the, the reason why they're putting emphasis on it, well, this is only going to occur, and this is the only time it's occurred, and it will be a long, long time before it ever occurs again. Ladies and gentlemen, if you go and study the heavens and so forth, you'll find all kinds of phenomena that is absolutely fascinating and interesting like this. 
So, Monty, do you think something significant is going to happen in terms of the fulfillment of Revelation chapter 12 on September 23rd of 2017? The answer is no. I think it will be the Feast of Trumpets. And I think there's plenty of instruction and teaching all about the Feast of Trumpets without finding some weird sequence that's going on astrologically in the heavens. If you really want to understand this prophecy, go study, really, go study, you know, the ancient understandings of the constellations. And you'll have an, a very clear answer for it. It's not the one that's being broadcast at the moment. Secondly, let me go ahead and mention this, since we're in the month of August, that here this month we're going to have a big solar eclipse that's going to come across all of the United States. Praise the Lord. By the way, lunar eclipses are generally signs to Israel. Solar eclipses are generally signs to the nations. Now, I'm already of the frame of mind that this country and this world is in deep, deep trouble with the Lord and subject to a whole series of judgments, and that we've already begun to see the beginning of sorrows, and we're already seeing all of the atmosphere associated with the end times. I don't think one more solar eclipse, and there's been a bunch in my lifetime, I don't think one more solar eclipse, just because it cuts through the central part of the United States, coast to coast, is that terribly significant. I already did believe there was plenty of ominous signs of God's impending judgment. Do I think that's what it represents? Yes, I do. I do believe the solar eclipse represents a warning to the nations about they are getting ready to enter dark days, very dark days, and, um, and it will be beyond their control. So when it comes to the solar eclipse, I'm okay with that. Uh, but I think there's plenty of evidence to already have that conclusion as to what it means. September 23rd, I think it's going to come and go. And I pray that a whole lot of brethren are not disappointed, frustrated, discouraged. You will continue to study the scripture and find out the truth of these prophecies. And by the way, there is a completely very understandable alternative alternative. Uh, teaching on Revelation chapter 12 that is not associated with this event talked about September 23rd. So that's the so you so this will carry us over here into the next question that comes from Tim. A will um, so you believe that all the signs in Revelation chapter 12 would tie more to the start of the Great Tribulation, abomination of desolation happening in the winter. winter. Okay, and so that would tie to Daniel chapter nine as well, talking about the start of the chapter 7 all the way through chapter 9. Okay. Um, The next question from Tim, he asks this specifically, will the Ark of the Covenant play a role in the last days, whereas some say in the Antichrist will actually sit upon it, proclaiming himself to be God? This would maybe be a literal fulfillment of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where it says he will take his seat at the temple of God, displaying himself to be God. And then he asks if that might happen at the same time as the... um, uh, the covenant made with in Daniel chapter 9, verses 27, talking about a stop to the sacrifice and on the wing of abominations, right. making desolate. Would all those so, kind of tie together? Yeah, so let's quickly define the um, abomination of desolation prophecy that Daniel gives, which, by the way, Yeshua re- tells us to refer to for the start of the Great Tribulation. Matthew 24, he says, go to Daniel, let the reader understand what Daniel says about that prophecy. So what did Daniel tell us? 
Well, he told us that there's going to be a, a daily sacrifice on an altar on the Temple Mount that it will be operating. And the start of the Great Tribulation will be the shutting down of that. And then he basically tells us that shortly thereafter, that the Antimsi rises up in esteem. An image of him is set up, and apparently a false prophet does some miracles with it. And that the Antichrist then comes to power in the world in that time period. Now, you have to read other other prophecies that integrate with that. For example, Revelation tells us that about a month after the altar gets shut down, the two witnesses will begin to emerge on the Temple Mount. And they'll begin to prophesy judgments, just about the time the Antichrist is coming to power. Now, this business about him taking a seat on at the holy place, right, You got. let's make sure we got our definitions correct. Uh, we all have done the study of the tabernacle, where the inner sanctuary was the Holy of Holies, the outer sanctuary was the holy place. I always tell everybody, if you went to Sun school, you had that nice lady come in with a flannel graph, and she explained the whole tabernacle to you. Uh, that definition of the tabernacle is not the definition of the temple in Jerusalem. Let me say this to you again. The definition of the temple in Jerusalem is there is a Holy of Holies. Okay, But the entire Temple Mount is called the Holy Place. They call the first chamber simply the sanctuary right. in the temple in Jerusalem. So if we're talking about the Temple Mount and that in Jerusalem, if you're anywhere on the Temple Mount, that's called the Holy Place. And if you go up and you set up a grandstand and you take a seat anywhere on the Temple Mount, you will have satisfied that prophecy in Second Thessalonians 2. He does not have to have an Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, and go in and try to sit on it. Okay? He doesn't have to go inside the sanctuary. Besides that, to tell you the truth, I'm not even sure that the temple sanctuary will be built when these events take place. The prophecy only speaks to the altar and the temple mount. It never speaks of the Ark of the Covenant coming forth, except just as the Messiah returns for the day of the Lord, the prophecy says that there is an opening in, in heaven, and the Ark of the Covenant that is in heaven is viewed. That that's heaven opening up as the Messiah comes back with power and great glory. And I think there's a good possibility that when we see the... the Son of Man coming, when it talks about power and great glory, I think from the earth we're going to get a vision that he's coming directly from the temple. We're going to have some kind of a vision toward heaven, and we're going to see, you know, the holy holies. We're going to see the judgment seat, the mercy seat. We're going to see it all as the Messiah comes. I think it's going to be something far better than Steven Spielberg has ever thought of. Uh, That's what the scriptures talk about. Any talk of the present Ark of the Covenant here on the earth having something to do with the end times is pure speculation. Right. Anything having to do with it, the temple will be has to be rebuilt. Pure speculation. The prophecy is very precise. It only requires an altar on the Temple Mount. It only requires the Temple Mount surface. And right now, given the world that we live in and all the controversies associated with the Temple Mount, I don't think we're going to have any trouble satisfying or fulfilling those prophecies.
Very good. Our next question comes from Elaine. She asks this. Uh, I was just watching the DVD, the special Messianic update you did with Eddie Chumney back in January, and um, she meant she noticed that neither of you mentioned uh, there was a uh, significant event uh, that took place in 1897 uh, where it was Theodore uh, Herzl, um, and how that's exactly 50 years from the UN resolution in 1947. Right. So, is there some significance to that um, that that wasn't the mentioned? The quick answer is yes. We only allude to it. Uh, Eddie specifically was talking about a whole series of anniversaries that are linked in and synchronizing in. That certainly was one of them. We just didn't elaborate uh, in a lot of detail about it. I think we alluded to other synchronizations and other things that are coming upon their anniversary. Yeah, I think the question might be, there isn't interesting that there's there's a 50-year gap between significant events right. between 1947 and 1897, but then there was also one yeah, from well, 67 of, to... Right, there's a series of them, 50 years, 70 years, 30 years, there's a series of those, and that's essentially what Eddie was alluding to. All right. Uh, she also asks a second question on a different topic. Uh, Elaine asks this. Uh, can you explain the difference in the judgment in Numbers uh, chapter 25 where it says 24,000 died in the plague? I think that's the story with Phineas. Uh, and then Paul references that plague in 1 Corinthians 10 and only says 23,000. Easy, easy way to answer this. This is one of the excellent examples of copying errors that was made in the original New Testament scriptures. And so the, so the guys who printed the Bible decided to not try to correct it. They decided to just repeat what the old manuscript says. And we're talking about a manuscript that probably had been copied, 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 and so forth. I think the Catholic Church owns hundreds of manuscripts and copies uh, concerning New Testament scriptures. And so when scholars go in to try to do a translation, they have to deal with all of these kinds of issues. And some translators take the position, I'm not going to try to correct something I think is an obvious thing that needs correcting. Instead, I'm just going to repeat what the manuscript says. And then you and I are supposed to figure it out. Okay, And that's one example of it. Okay. By the way, Acts chapter 7 is filled with a bunch of stuff like that. Okay. Our next question comes from Helen. She says this, thank you for your teachings and insight to the Word of God. Do you have any insight as to why, out of all the covenants that God has made, that the uh, covenant made with Noah is seen to all men, whether believer or not? As the rainbow, uh, she says, is in another realm and means that all men can see this realm. No one needs to open their spiritual eyes to see rainbows. Is there something significant about the covenant with Noah that God was saying more than what our English Bibles say? Surely there is more, especially since everyone can see this covenant, but maybe don't identify the new covenant. Well, I would suggest that in every covenant, we see the evidence of, we actually see real evidence of the covenant. For example, let me go back, you know, the covenant made with Adam. I still see a lot of men who go out every day labor by the sweat of their brow, which is part of that covenant, and that we have to till the ground. And so forth. That's and women bear children in travail. That's very real, by the way. Um, that is, you can see that just like the rainbow. You can see uh, uh, the covenant made with King David. The city of Jerusalem still exists. He was the one that helped establish the city of Jerusalem. 
Yeah, it's over 3,000 years old. Did you know that that is the longest standing capital of a nation in the history of the world? There's been many civilizations and realms, and all of them have interfered with Jerusalem. Jerusalem still exists while a lot of them don't exist. Uh, and that was a promise made to David. Um, to this day, we still have brethren 2,000 years ago still giving testimony of the saving power of Yeshua. You know, in every generation, they still stand up and give testimony to it. And we're still witnesses. And we still have the evidence of the Holy Spirit that was given to us. Um, so I would say, well, yes, you're absolutely right. The rainbow is a very physical thing you see. But when I look at the covenants, I still see the evidence of all of the covenants right. in real things that are happening all the time. Just proving to me how real these covenants are. I, I recently did a did a teaching on some covenants, talking about all the different signs and symbols that represent a covenant, and that there's with all covenants there's some sort of sign or a mark that you see that identify the covenant. Right. Covenant of marriage, you see the ring on someone's hand, you have a sign of the covenant. I even took it so far as to that even your belly button is a scar of the covenant of your life being born, and your father cut the cut the umbilical cord there, and there's a scar and a sign of the covenant of life that you have even on your body. When it comes to rainbows, exactly the same thing. It's a sign that we see as a covenant, the, the covenant that was made with Noah. And actually, I thought it was something that was real interesting. I think I mentioned this last when I was teaching uh, Noah the last time. The interesting thing about rainbows is this, is that every rainbow that an observer sees is the actually only visible by that observer. Unless if somebody is actually at a distance away, if you're a different angle, different location, you'll never see it. I did this with my kids when you're spraying water on the grass and misting a bunch of water and you can see the sun overhead and you see a big arc of a rainbow. And I see, and I could tell my kids or my kids could be playing with the water and they say, I see a rainbow, but I don't see it yet until I come alongside them and see that covenant. So it's a unique sign that is to each individual observer there is a unique sign, if you will, of that covenant. And unless you... Well, I can give you another example of that unique sign. I mean, every man who's part of the covenant of Abraham and has had physical circumcision, I guarantee you it is a unique sign for him. That it is. That it is. Um, I don't know. <laughs> you, kind of, you kind of took that there right there. When it comes to the rainbow, though, I thought this was interesting, is that you do have to be in alignment with somebody. You have to be side by side with somebody, possibly in the faith, physically and spiritually. Then you can see the sign together in a community and brethren. So, um, so there is something unique about that sign. Absolutely. Uh, all right, let's get to our next question. This is a little bit more of a practical question here that comes from Lisa. Uh, two specific questions. Let me go ahead and read both of them here. She asks this, um, specifically with regard to stock market earnings. Is stock market trading considered to be gambling, and what does the Torah say about that matter? Can you tithe on stock market income? My husband and I own stock in Zion Oil. We also trade commodities, foreign exchange, and binary options. We pay taxes on this income. We want to tithe 10% of, tra of trading income to the Lord. Would he consider this tithes as income acceptable to him um, all, all we have comes from him. We strive to please him and don't want to offend him and may end up being a major source of income for us in the future. So how would we tie that in okay. practically? The, the commandment of giving that the Lord gives to us, and specifically the commandment of tithing, 
it says that we are to give one-tenth of our increase. And so then the question comes down to, well, what exactly is our increase? Uh, most people go to a traditional job, they're paid a salary or a, 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 they get a paycheck, and that's their increase. They have extended their labor and this is what they got in return for it. But investors uh, do it a little bit slightly different. They invest in a thing hoping that it will pro pro provide a financial gain for it, and that is their increase. We simply call it profit in that particular case. If you were a business owner and you had a merchant business or whatever, you wouldn't tithe on the gross amount. You would tithe on the net increase. Uh, and I, just like a farmer, I sowed this much seed, and this is how much I got in increase, and so you tithe on the increase. I do believe, and if you're asking me directly, uh, investing in the stock market, bonds, whatever the case may be, investing is just another type of labor, uh, and that the increase of what it is, you judge what the increase is, the profitability, whatever. Yes, there's a commanded uh, uh, commandment to give a tenth of the increase. Let me also just add this, too. Uh, that an offering, a free will votive offering, is completely separate from tithing. Where you can just, out of the generosity of your heart, out of the joy of your heart, you give a gift uh, for it. It's not computed to your increase. It has nothing to do with it. It's based on do you have the capacity to give. And that you take from what you have and you share uh, with others. Or you share with the Lord. And... Uh, and it has, it's not tied to what was your increase. Right. But tithing is tied to the increase. In this particular case, if, the, if this is an income stream to them, this is how they live, and so forth, yes, it's their increase. Right. So they would, should tithe to it. And there's, you almost could look at it any other way. What is your primary source of income increase that sustains right. you, however you kind of come Whatever that. your revenue streams are that are coming into you, your increases that come to you, you're commanded to tithe on those income streams. So take it to another step further. Let's say a professional gambler who that's what their profession is. If that's is. what their profession is, then yes. However, you get a little bit ticklish situation here because uh, that borders on what some people would consider to be sinful. I'm not going to make the proclamation as to what it is. But if it is in the realm of sin, never give any of it to the Lord. Never. It's blasphemy. If you get gain from, for example, like being a prostitute uh, or whatever, you never, none of that should ever be given to the Lord. He, he considers that to be an abomination. He considers that to be blasphemy. If you're a thief and you stole, don't tithe it. Um, if you embezzled, don't tithe it. Some even go so far as to say that if you win the lottery, don't tithe it. And I tend to favor that. It's not really your increase. It's a windfall. And it's treated the same way as you get your inheritance. If you get an inheritance, that's not your increase. That's your inheritance. You're not commanded to tithe that. All some people do. But you can give an offering from something, but don't tithe because it must be a part of your increase. And a windfall from winning the lottery or receiving inheritance is not a labor's thing. You didn't, quote, go out and earn that. 
that's just a windfall that came your way. So you said, though, when I, when I did mention professional gambling, that certainly is a major gray area. Where that's it's like a it's, huge gray area. Matter of fact, my, my suggestion would be, and I, and I limit it to a suggestion. Mm-hmm. I'm not making a declaration for the Lord. Mm-hmm. My suggestion is steer clear. Don't, don't plan on giving that. The, the old, you know, you've heard the old saying about, Lord, if you help me win the lottery, I'll give you half of it. Better not. Mm-hmm. Better not give half to it. It's like cursing yourself. Right. Um, so. Interesting. All right. We only have a few questions left. Let's ask this one here. This next question comes from Sharice. She asks this. uh, There are references to keeping the new moon Sabbaths in the future. So my question is, if there is nothing new under the sun, as the phrase goes, um, and everything has been declared uh, from the end to the beginning, um, or Aleph Tav, should we be keeping new moon Sabbath today? Everything we do appears to be in practice uh, for the millennial kingdom and a circular pattern, types and shadows, times and seasons. What is your thought on this? The simple answer is yes to this question. However, we have a problem with doing this. The new moon observance that's given in the scripture is tied to the, to the temple. It, there's a new moon a festival, there's a new moon um, feast that's eaten in the temple by two representatives of the tribes of Israel, two elders of the tribes of Israel, and they eat it with the king, they eat it with the priests. And the idea of that new moon feast is that it's not a temple ritual, it's, a, it's for the people. And so the representatives of the people, at least two elders of the tribes, would come and do that. Yeah, but or no, no, that's that's the way the temple service uh, was formed up. So, that so traditional, not so not from scripture, but well, but traditional. No, no, no. It, the 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 commandment is given to the new moon festival, but it didn't necessarily give the details on how it was done. I'm telling you, how they would observe and keep the new moon festival. This is the way they did it. This is the way it was conducted with the priests in the in the temple. This is the way it was done. Now, we don't have a temple. We don't have the priesthood. We don't have established elders of the tribes. We don't have a king sitting there so that we can eat the new moon festival. So what part can we do? Each month we can notice the phase of the moon and recognize that the new moon is occurring. But can we fulfill all those other things that was associated with it in the past? No, not until we get a temple, not until we get the Messiah to come back. So was that day considered a Sabbath, as she's referring to? For those men. For those men. For those men, it was a very specific thing they would do. And they would rotate it from tribe to tribe to tribe. It was part of the duties of the elders of the different tribes. Interesting. Though, as a Sabbath, though, that's not listed in Leviticus chapter 23. And as is, but, okay. All right. Our next question comes from Glenda. She asks this, in listening to your teaching about the centurion who said that he was at Yeshua's feet, saw the veil rent in the Holy of Holies, can you give a biblical reference for this? Can't necessarily find this. Um, I believe this is Matthew chapter 27. I believe they're toward the end. Let me read that passage. Matthew 27, beginning with what verse? Uh, Verse 50. All All right. Let me read that. 
And Yeshua cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after the resurrection, they entered in the holy city and appeared to many. Verse 54. Now the centurion and those who were keeping him guard over it, they saw the earthquake, they saw the things that were happening, and became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. The only way a centurion can see the veil split is to be standing directly east on the Mount of Olives, slightly elevated above both the gates into the temple as well as the altar, looking through the open doors into the sanctuary all the way into the veil. By the way, it is possible to stand on the Mount of Olives and find the location where the centurion's dying. Now, he was standing at the foot of the cross. So that's the reason why I believe and advocate that the crucifixion was actually on the Mount of Olives, where the centurion had that point of view. Archaeologists, uh, archaeologists also believe that in that day, the Herod's Temple, that the doors were huge, massive. gigantic. The, the veil was massive as well. That it's like when those doors were open, I mean, you saw in and it was a massive... You so, so you might think the veil, it's like, how could he see a 20-foot tall curtain? Well, it actually was a, like a 50 or 60-foot tall curtain. doors. Right. So, it was, so this was a very visible sign of these things. Anyone standing at the foot of the cross would be able to see it. And obviously the centurion is the is the testimony of that. Correct. All right. Um, our last question that I have in my list here uh, comes from um, Doreen. I believe that I'm saying that correctly. Um, I am a Hebrew-believing Messianic following the law of Moses. I was raised Protestant, and my stepfather is a very strong believing in grace, former Protestant pastor, who believes we are no longer under the law but grace. I'm having difficulty defending what I believe, especially when I come across verses like Romans 11, verses 4 through 6. Um, but what is God's answer to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not knelt down before Baal. In the same way, in this present age, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Uh, now, if it is by grace, it is according not based on legalistic works. If it were otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. I believe grace is just something new because of Yeshua dying on the tree, but grace was there during the time of Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Can you help me work through my thought process to greater defend my belief uh, that we are still under the law, and because we are under the law, we then have grace. Or am I not understanding this correctly? Thank you for your wisdom and knowledge. Okay, so let's begin first with the quoting from the book of Romans. Let's give a quick overview of the book of Romans. Paul wrote the book of Romans while he was in Rome. And he was speaking to... Jews, his fellow Jewish brethren and other Gentiles there, and he was giving the compelling arguments that the Messiah has come and that redemption is now available, you know, through him that had been promised by Moses and the prophets. And he's making a series of arguments, and the big argument that he's making is the definition of justification. How are we justified before God when we're all sinners? If we've all transgressed God's commandments, broken his covenant, uh, committed iniquity, how do we correct that situation before God? Well, Paul's argument is that justification is not by keeping commandments. 
It is by the work of redemption the Messiah did and by his grace and believing in his promises. So he's making a series of arguments about how the promises were actually given even before the law was given. So he's trying to negate Jews who were going around saying, well, you get saved by keeping the law. That's not true. Judaism today teaches prayer, penance, and good deeds averts the severe decree. That's salvation by works. By keeping good works and good deeds, you know, you get saved and you, you, don't, you don't get judged uh, in eternity. That You get to be in the kingdom. Um, that's not true. Um, the only way that Abraham was justified was he believed God and his faith was counted for righteousness. And he's kind of like set the standard for us to understand this. And so that's the reason why and Paul is quoting from Abraham repeatedly in the book of Romans. Now he comes up to chapter 6 and he's going a step further and he says, now what did the law really do? Well, the law revealed transgression. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. How do we know that? Because of the law, because each one of us has transgressed the law. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Okay, so he says in Romans chapter 6, he said, we are no longer under the law, because what he's really talking about is the law of sin and death. The law reveals sin and it and explains that death comes with it. The law teaches that. But he says we're no longer under sin and under death because we've been redeemed. So <clears throat> that part of the law which uh, delineated sin, it doesn't apply to us anymore. Why? Because I haven't transgressed the law. I, uh, I'm forgiven of my transgressions. I'm now walking with the Messiah by grace and, and receiving his gift of eternal life. So I'm definitely not under the law. Um, and that's the argument he's really making. This is what the, and he's countering the Jews who are going around telling Gentiles and all kinds of you've got to keep the law to be saved. By the way, you have that in Acts 15. You know, you've got to be circumcised to be saved. You've got to keep all the law to be saved and so forth. And, and they're arguing, no, 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 that's not how you get saved. Gentiles don't get saved that way. God saved them. Abraham didn't keep the law. The law didn't even exist. Right. You know, he got saved. And so it's ne- there's never been salvation by the law. What I would ask uh, this young lady to ask her father, being a Protestant, said, how did Moses get saved? Ask the question, how did the children of Israel get saved before Yeshua showed up? How did they do it? Well, I can tell you how they did it. They believed that the Messiah would come and their faith toward the Messiah to come and do the work of redemption was sufficient for their faith to be counted as righteousness. We simply believe the Messiah has come. They were believing he would come. They believed that there was a future redemption that God would. We believe he's brought redemption. We are the recipients of a great promise that to them was just a promise. That promise and the faith of that promise was sufficient for salvation. For them, we believe the promise has been completed. That faith is now counted as righteousness for us. The law had nothing to do with the salvation of anybody. So if it never had anything to do with the salvation of anybody, the whole argument 
being made today, well, you don't want to be under the law. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. What is the opposite of being under the law? Above the law? Do you want to be a believer in Yeshua the Messiah and have the testimony you're above the law? You're above God's commandments. Do you, do you understand how ludicrous that position is? Now, I would say to this uh, sister, you're not under the law anymore. I agree with Paul. You're not under the law anymore. You have received redemption. You do not have to worry about the penalty of the law because you receive redemption. But does that give, as Paul brings this out, does that give you now a license to openly transgress the law? God forbid, Paul says. That's the balance. The law doesn't save you, but you better be obeying the Lord if you claim you know him and you love him and you believe in him. You better be obeying, because if you don't, you're a hypocrite. Right. And after someone's healed, what did Messiah say? Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. And what's the definition of sin? Transgressing the commandments of God. Right. So... To uh, my brother, uh, who is a good Protestant pastor, I've been there, I used to be one of those guys, um, you need to rethink uh, you know, your whole posture toward God. Do you believe that you can claim that you believe in the Lord and stand up and willfully and defiantly tell him to his face, I don't have to do what you say? I believe that that would be a problem for you. And I believe what the only testimony that you have is, if I believe in the Lord, then I do what the Lord says. And by the way, it doesn't start at Matthew 1. It started way back a long time ago. That's when the Lord started talking, and you don't get to pick and choose what you want to do with the Lord. You have to take in all of what the Lord has said uh, for this. And by the way, the commandments are not grievous at all. Uh, they're easy to keep. I think this all ties back into also with the conversation we were having earlier about the book of Hebrews, the whole concept of replacement theology. We're trying to replace something, replace the law, anything like that. But that's not what's going on in the scripture. Just because there's a, and, and this also goes back to the study of covenants as well. The covenant is an everlasting covenant. Even if somebody transgresses the covenant, if the other party keeps the covenant, remembers the covenant for them, then the covenant is still Right. In There's plenty of passages that says that God has never abandoned Israel, mm-hmm. has never cut off Israel, has never quit the covenants. Right. And that, his, that once he uh, renders redemption to you, yeah. uh, that, that you little mistakes and so forth are not going to be a problem for you. That's how powerful his salvation is. His arm is not short that he doesn't know how to save. Right. And he, he remembers who we are. We're just dust. Okay, and but at the same time, I would say the lesson we learned in the Old Testament was don't test the Lord. The children of Israel tested the Lord. It cost them. We we have the same instruction to us. I I'm glad that you have the grace of God. Don't test the Lord. Do not willfully go out and sin so you can prove how big His grace is. That's what Paul is arguing. In Romans chapter 6. In the same way, if we go and we uh, commit an offense against the law and then punishment is paid, however restitution is made there, that doesn't mean that law went away. That right. doesn't mean that, 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 that now that's null and void, that the, even though the punishment was paid. Yeah, right. if you, you commit a crime here, you go to jail. When you come back out, that law is still in effect. That law is still in effect, and you can still violate it. That's right. 
Yeah, exactly right. All right, is that our last question? That is our last question. All right, well, brethren, uh, we thank you for joining us uh, for this edition of Questions and Answers. Again, if you'd like to send a question in to us, uh, send it to qa at lionlam.net, and we'll be happy to make it a part of the next program for it. The Lord bless all of you, and let's end with a word of prayer, Ephraim. Sure. Would you lead us, please? No problem. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time together that we can uh, study your word. We can uh, ask and answer some of these questions, Father. And I pray that everything that we do here at this ministry and a part of this program uh, is a blessing to the, the body of Messiah, blessing to the brethren, and edifies um, the believers, Father. Um, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to uh, speak of your words, your instruction, your redemption and all of those things and those blessings that you give to us. Father, I pray that you continue to lead us and guide us by your Holy Spirit and in all things that we do. We pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We uh, pray and we thank you for the opportunity to uh, be vessels fit for your use, Father, and I pray that you would just continue to use us mightily and pour us out as a drink offering for the brethren to be edified. We thank you, Lord, for this time and these things, and we give you all the honor, the glory, and the praise. It's in your Son, Yeshua, we pray. Amen. Amen. Shalom.